Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi and Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi's is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital. Welcome back, everybody. It's obviously 2022. Happy New Year. Uh, Yingyi's and I are going to look back on last year reflect on some of the key developments and then formulate some thoughts in relation to the future and what may or may not transpire. Yes. Thanks, Chris. So December was a robust month for all portfolios performance-wise as the expected mean reversion in spreads came to pass following spread widening in November. More substantively, December caps off an unusual 12-month period punctuated by a range of rare or multi-sigma external shocks and a pandemic, of course, that refuses to abate. The world moved into 2021 full of hope that effective vaccines would lay COVID-19 to rest. To some extent, this optimism has been validated as hospitalizations and deaths were ameliorated by the rollout of high-efficacy inoculations. And yet COVID-19 mutations in years have propagated new and even larger waves of infections via the likes of Delta and Omicron. The one silver lining is that the apparently lower severity of Omicron portends the possibility that the virus will continue to trade off transmissibility against its human toll. The risk, of course, is that there are future variants with even more potent reproduction rates than Omicron that inflict much higher mortality. And Chris, the main intellectual and financial market agenda for 2022 has shifted to questions swirling around the trajectory for inflation, interest rates and asset prices. In 2021, we saw long-term 10-year government bond yields in Australia and the US lift from 0.97% and 0.91% respectively at the end of 2020 to 1.67% and 1.51% by the 31st of December 2021. As our Chief Macro Strategist Kieran Davies mentions, developed and emerging market central banks have started to slowly increase their overnight cash rates. This was encouraged by a resurgence in core inflation with the latest US numbers shocking markets to the high side. In advanced economies, the weighted policy rate across all countries has increased marginally from a record low of 0.07% to 0.14% over recent months, with six out of 17 central banks raising rates, the largest of which have been the UK and Korea. Prior to the pandemic, the advanced economy policy rate was 0.8%. In emerging markets, the weighted policy rate across all economies has increased from 4.5% to 5%, with 10 out of 21 central banks raising rates and three banks cutting rates. They include Indonesia, Turkey and North Macedonia. Prior to COVID, the emerging market policy rate was 5.5%. Yeah, Ying, unless COVID derails the economic recovery, the trend to higher policy rates should continue in 2022. Importantly, the US Federal Reserve recently signaled that it is likely to stop buying bonds in March and commence the process of normalising its cash rate thereafter. Luckily, the RBA is weighing up stopping buying bonds in February, which in our view is all but certain. That is to say, the RBA's QE program should end in mid-February. Yet the RBA is still reluctant to raise rates until wage growth is fast enough to keep inflation in the 2-3% to target band. The RBA thinks this will probably take until 2024 or 2023 at a stretch, But the ongoing decline in the unemployment rate raises the risk of earlier action in late 2022 or the first half of 2023. Now, Chris, the US Federal Reserve's preferred measure of core inflation printed at 0.5% in the month of November and an incredible 4.7% over the last year, which is more than double the Fed's 2% target. 
We have not seen inflation like this since the late 1980s. After a modest uptick in core inflation in Australia, the RBA dumped two of its signature pandemic policy platforms, the three-year government bond yield target and its long-term forward guidance in November. And then in December, it de facto confirmed that its bond purchase program would end in mid-February, which is now the dominant consensus view within markets. Notwithstanding enormous event risk in December 2021, the projected mean reversion in spreads materialised as had been broadly anticipated. After posting a record three consecutive monthly losses, the Osborn floating rate note index bounced modestly in December, increasing by 0.04%. Coolabar's zero interest rate duration or floating rate strategies outperformed, led by the Longshot Opportunities Fund, which returned 1.63% gross. Note that this is an institutional only product, not retail. Followed by the Longshot Credit Fund, which returned 1.33% gross, or between 1.23 to 1.27% net. In the cash enhanced category, the Smarter Money Higher Income Fund returned 0.3% gross, or between 0.23 to 0.25% net. Followed by the Smarter Money Fund, which returned 0.25% gross, or between 0.18 to 0.21% net of fees. Moving to strategies that are long interest rate duration, the Oswan Composite Bond Index returned 0.09% in December. This index only contains fixed rate as opposed to floating rate bonds with an average duration of 5.8 years. As a result of rising long-term interest rates, the Composite Bond Index had its two worst months in 30 plus years in 2021, in February, when it was down 3.58%, and October, when it was down 3.56%. Coolabar's active composite bond strategy outperformed, returning 0.53% gross or 0.46% net in December. Over the last 12 months, Coolabar's active composite bond strategy has outperformed the composite bond index by 0.7% gross or 16 basis points net of fees. There was reasonable spread compression observed across most capital structures and sectors during December. The ASX major bank hybrid curve performed well as we had assumed given the strong seasonality that tends to grip into year-end and the repayment of Westpac's WBCPG hybrid, which puts $700 million of cash in the hands of investors. The five-year major bank hybrid curve compressed from 237 basis points above the quarterly bank bill swap rate at the end of November to 210 basis points by the end of November. One step up the capital stack T2 also rallied, with five-year major bank spreads contracting from 146 basis points to 138 basis points over the same period. Even the major bank senior curve performed somewhat, with five-year senior spreads coming in from 71 basis points to 69 basis points. Yeah, Yingers, we have two ASX hybrid maturities from ANZ, ANZ PE, and from CBA, CBA PF, in March, which should trigger replacement deals in the first few months of this year. And Westpac's also flagged that it will consider an OTC hybrid issue following in the pioneering footsteps of NAB, which has consummated two OTC deals thus far. APRA's updated total loss absorbing capacity regime also means that we're forecasting that the major banks will continue to issue healthy volumes of tier two averaging around 16.2 billion per year until the 1st of January, 2026 albeit at a marginally reduced pace compared to recent years where the big four banks have issued between 17.3 billion and 18.6 billion each year. Current multiples of five-year major bank tier two spreads relative to five-year major bank senior bond spreads are sitting at circa two times, which is broadly in line with the recent historical heuristics in years. 
And Chris, one technical way of being monitoring is the new design and distribution obligations or DDO legislation that came into effect in October 2021, which will likely see some hybrid supplies shift off the ASX and into the OTC domain, that's the over-the-counter domain. ASX deals will almost certainly be somewhat smaller in size as a result. Current five-year major bank hybrids are sitting at a touch north of three times senior, which is within the historical heuristic range. If the technical of reduced ASX supply plays out, we could see listed hybrids trade tighter than they have in the past, although this will be influenced by the levels in the OTC market, where NAB's most recent security trades 80 basis points wide of its maturity match ASX equivalents. We have recently updated our estimates of the four major banks' debt funding task over the next few years. As a result of deposit growth continuing to outstrip new lending, the big banks' funding gap has compressed. We currently estimate they need to issue about $133 billion per annum on average over the next three calendar years, which compares favourably to the $147 billion per annum they issued on average over the 10 years prior to the COVID-19 shock. Note, however, that funding needs are really back-ended into the calendar years of 2023 and 2024. In the state government bond market, 10-year spreads to the Commonwealth government bond yield curve compressed from 37 basis points to 33 basis points over the month, that is using an index averaging New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria and Western Australia Treasury corporations. All the states save Victoria reported much better budget outcomes than the market had been forecasting, and Victoria was in line, with material downgrades to future debt issuance consistent with Coolabar's priors. The standout in this respect was New South Wales, with a stunning $20 billion downgrade to debt issuance in FY 2022, vis-a-vis -vis bank estimates only a few months prior. Recall New South Wales had shocked investors by proposing a staggering $35.5 billion debt raise in June 2021, which was about twice what the market had in mind, which Coolabar asserted would be slashed as New South Wales came to understand it could draw down on its $27 billion debt retirement fund to repay debt. This was an immensely contrarian view that no other investor we know of shared. Despite an enormously expensive Delta-induced lockdown, which cost New South Wales budget $11 billion, the Treasurer was still able to announce a huge reduction in debt issuance in FY 2022 to just $27.4 billion, or $8.1 billion less than what New South Wales planned before the lockdown. This was also $20 billion less than the likes of the CBA estimates uh, New South Wales would have to issue after accounting for the cost of the lockdown. This extraordinary turnaround was enabled when the Premier decided in September 2021 to draw on $11 billion from the debt retirement fund to repay debt. The New South Wales Treasurer subsequently resolved to further redivert up to circa $10 billion of New South Wales taxpayer revenues, including royalties and state-owned corporation dividends, which have been funneled to the debt retirement fund despite record New South Wales fiscal deficits back to the budget. Yeah, Ying is, I think it's pretty well known that Coolabar initiated an ESG activism campaign. By ESG, we mean environmental, social and governance. The operative letter here being G or governance. And we were concerned about the uh, potential conflicts of interest between New South Wales' investment agency, which wanted New South Wales to issue debt and give it that money to put in a massive levered equity carry trade with the investment agency being paid fees on that money. And the interest of New South Wales taxpayers who want responsible fiscal policy and financial management. 
So we ran an ESG activism campaign to highlight these debt repayment opportunities, which the New South Wales government, to its immense credit, has um, obviously embraced. We've written a lot about this topic on Livewire. So if you look under my name, Christopher Joy, on Livewire, you'll see a bunch of uh, related articles. Yingers? And Chris, we've also previously published our research on the quantum of government bonds the banking system needs to buy as a result of APRA shutting down the $136 billion Committed Liquidity Facility, or CLF, and as a result of banks repaying the $188 billion they owe under the RBA's term funding facility, amongst other drivers. While our updated numbers imply the banks have to buy about $408 billion of government bonds for liquidity purposes over the next few years, it is really interesting to see how little the market and the banks themselves have focused on their regulatory liquidity requirements over the near to medium term, rather than just the immediate term. There are a couple of good reasons for this. First, investors tend to not be focused on regulatory liquidity because it is complex and boring and were, for example, universally surprised by APRA's decision to close the $136 billion committed liquidity facility, with material consequences for both credit and bank bonds in particular, and government bonds and state government bonds, or semis more specifically. Shutting the CLF forces banks to issue more debt to replace this facility with cash on deposit at the RBA, or government bonds. Note that both are classified as Level 1 High Quality Liquid Assets, or HQLA1. Government bonds encompasses both Commonwealth and state government bonds, although banks strongly prefer the latter because they pay much higher yields. Investors seem not to have expected the 30 to 35 basis points move wider in bank-issued senior bond spreads, despite us repeatedly writing about this risk and noting it on our podcast as well, and forecasting the rapid decline of the CLF. For the banks, managing short-term funding and liquidity is the paramount priority. It's not widely understood, even within banks, albeit outside of the bank treasury teams, just how volatile the bank's liquidity metrics are. One key metric, Chris, called the liquidity coverage ratio, the LCR, measures the share of HQLA, i.e. government bonds and cash on deposit at the RBA, that banks hold relative to a 30-day stress test of their expected net cash outflows, known as NCOs, in a simulated liquidity shock. Ying is it's not unusual for a bank's LCR to move by 20 to 30 percentage points in a single day. The regulatory minimum LCR is 100%. So banks have to hold HQLA sufficient to cover 30 days of net cash outflows. But because of the inherent volatility of LCRs, banks prudently hold a 25 to 50% buffer above this 100% regulatory minimum to ensure against the risk of sudden changes in their LCRs. This is why most bank boards target minimum LCRs of 125 to 135%. From due diligence, we know that banks don't really forecast changes in their LCRs beyond three to six months, simply because of the complexity and challenge of managing LCRs in the short term. And bank funding strategies are likewise very focused on the next three, six, and 12 months. In our view, that means that banks can sometimes lose sight of medium-term funding and liquidity changes. One note with the example is the need to repay the RBA the $188 billion the banking system borrowed from it under the so-called term funding facility or TFF. Don't you think he is? Yes, Chris. And it's very clear that the banking system has not really turned its mind properly to what happens after they repay this money over 2022, 23 and 24. When the RBA established the TFF, it created digital cash in the form of deposits that banks hold at the RBA in what is known as their Exchange Settlement Accounts, or ESAs. 
So the $188 billion TFF resulted in the RBA giving the banks $188 billion of ESA cash. As the TFF is repaid, this ESA cash will disappear. Importantly, all this ESA cash is currently counted in the bank's LCRs as HQLA, and not many banks are running LCRs way above their internal targets. So repaying the TFF will therefore disappear an enormous amount of HQLA, i.e. ESA cash, that the banks will have to replace with more HQLA, i.e. government bonds. Our credit analysts have spent an enormous amount of time modelling the banking system's HQLA shortfall as a result of several variables. Firstly, the closure of the $136 billion CLF in 2022, which disappears $136 billion of assets that counted in the bank's LCRs as a substitute for HQLA. Secondly, the repayment of the $188 billion TFF, which disappears $188 billion of ESA cash and hence $188 billion of HQLA. Thirdly, growth in deposits, which generally create new NCOs and require banks to hold more HQLA against those deposits. And lastly, changes in NCOs themselves, for example, if banks try to manage NCOs. We update these models each time banks report their financial results and their pillar three numbers. We also update the models when APRA releases new banking statistics. Following the release of the latest APRA banking data last month and all the bank's results slash pillar three reports, we have revised our estimates of the amount of HQLA the banking system will need to fund and buy over the next three calendar years. What we discovered in the September quarter was that the banks had no idea the CLF closure was coming, even though APRA had written to them on multiple occasions and warned them to prepare for a world in which the CLF would be zeroed in the foreseeable future. Instead, we saw banks selling government bonds, or HQLA, in the September quarter to the tune of $20.4 billion. At the same time, NCOs increased in the September quarter by 4.1%, driving yet more HQLA demand. While NCOs normally track deposit growth, banks might try to reduce NCO growth through deposit repricing strategies, although this will cost them in both net interest margins and return on equity. And no banks really appear to believe they can fully control their NCOs. Some do think they can influence them at the margin. Furthermore, APRA is making the NCO calculations tougher for banks, given how rubbery some of the NCO numbers have been in the past, with APRA slapping both Macquarie and Westpac with penalties for dodgy liquidity calculations in recent times. Even if we assume in the most optimistic case that banks can somehow engineer zero NCO growth for three years running, i.e. de facto reduce NCOs, notwithstanding that the bank's balance sheets will be expanding, and that they are also able to run lower system-wide LCRs of 125% versus the current 130% average, they still need to fund and buy $247 billion of HQLA over the next three years. That is equivalent to 2.5 times the standard RBA QE programs of $100 billion each. There is one important difference, however, when the banks buy government bonds. When the RBA buys government bonds, it splits its purchases 80-20 in favour of the Commonwealth versus state government bonds. Yet when the banks buy government bonds, the split between them is 30-70 in favour of state securities or semis. This is because these assets pay a positive spread above the swap rate, whereas Commonwealth government bonds do not. Yeah, Ying, as two things may further help the banks with their bond buying, the banks that hold their government bonds in a mark-to-market portfolio 
The capital they retain against these assets is determined using a value at risk or VAR model using two years worth of prior rolling data. The shock that was March 2020 should drop out of this VAR model in February this year as the two years expire, reducing the capital they have to hold against government bonds. This could be a very material change for their appetite for specific sectors such as semis. For those banks that have hold to maturity or accrual rather than mark-to-market portfolios for their liquid assets, which is most banks, they now have a new VAR shock in the form of the sudden spike in interest rates in October and November 2021. We know this because we run these VAR models ourselves. This new VAR shock, which for the banks that were long duration, was actually worse than the March 2020 shock, results in a much more favourable capital treatment for state government bonds. This is because in October, November 2021, the spread on state government bonds over the swap rate actually compressed, making banks money. Whereas in March 2020, this spread above the swap rate jumped some 30 to 40 basis points. The hold to maturity VAR models use six years of rolling data rather than the two years used by the mark-to-market portfolios. Importantly, the VAR models only select one shock. So as you shift from the March 2020 shock to the October-November 2021 shock, the capital you have to hold against the different types of assets can theoretically change very materially. Described differently, the March 2020 shock resulted in banks having to hold much more capital against state government bonds because of their spike in their spreads relative to the swap rate in that particular period. The move out of that shock into a new shock, namely October, November 2021, where state government bonds outperformed relative to the swap rate, would reverse this unfavorable capital treatment. Of course, this ultimately depends on the assets the bank chooses to hold in its liquids portfolio. Different asset mixes could result in a different shock being selected by the VAR model. Equally, though, the bank can then optimize its asset holdings to minimize its capital and maximize its return on equity, given a set of portfolio positions and the ensuing capital allocations. So, Chris, looking ahead over 2022 and beyond, the contradictory cocktail of extremely high inflation, zero interest rates, tight labor markets, robust wages growth, elevated inflation expectations and record asset prices should have everyone exercised. But the party may not be over just yet. As the comparatively more benign Omicron variant of the virus reinforces the new normal of coexisting with the disease and sluggish central banks get further behind the curve, this bull market could elongate for some time. Don't you think, Chris? Yes, I do, Yingers. That's what we saw in 2016 when the Fed commenced a hiking cycle, lifting its cash rate from near zero to above 2% by late 2018. In 2016 and 2017, equities and credit spreads both rallied. It was not until the latter stages of this tightening process when the Fed's cash rate rose materially above 1% and the 10-year government bond yield pierced 2.5% that credit and equities turned. Current conditions are, however, different because of the absence of an inflation shock between 2016 and 2018. To better understand the downside risks, it's worth considering the deep disconnects in both the data and monetary policy settings. The cyclically adjusted Shiller price earnings ratio for the S&P 500 is currently at its second highest level, which is 39 times, in the last 140 years, surpassed only by the 2000 tech boom when it hit 44 times. Note that peak was quickly followed by a 50% drop in US shares over the next two years. Given the apparent relationship between extreme deviations in the Shiller price earnings ratio and sharp subsequent drawdowns, investors should, we think, have some pause. Based on the average level of this benchmark over the last 20 years, the US equities market looks some 40% overvalued. And Chris, following the tech wreck, the Fed quickly reacted by the infamous Greenspan put, slashing its cash rate from 6.5% all the way down to 1% by 2003. 
The Fed could provide this support because core inflation was benign back then and sitting around its 2% target. Since 2000, there has been a correlation between rising equity valuations and declining long-term interest rates, which makes sense given the latter are the discount rates used to price the present value of a company's future cash flows. The currently very low US 10-year government bond yield of 1.5%, which is a key discount rate proxy, is less than half its average level since 2000, and a full 100 basis points below the Fed's 2.5% estimate of its so-called neutral cash rate. This is the interest rate the Fed would maintain if inflation was bobbing around its target and the labour market was fully employed. It is conspicuously much lower than the interest rates required to bring a bona fide inflation outbreak back to earth. This is where the financial market outlook gets gnarly. There is an unprecedented divide between the current US inflation pulse and the monetary policy settings of the world's most important central bank. The Fed's preferred measure of core inflation is running at 4.8% on a six-month annualised basis, or 4.1% year-on-year, which is the highest level recorded since the early 1990s, and double the Fed's target. To make matters worse, burgeoning price pressures are impacting the way households think about their future with consumer inflation expectations rising to between 4 to 6%, the loftiest level since the early 1990s. The transitory inflation thesis attributed these price spikes to supply-side blockages precipitated by the pandemic, which was undoubtedly a driver of the first round effects. Unfortunately, there is evidence that a wage price spiral may be developing. The world's largest economy is recording the briskest wage growth since the early 2000s. On a six-month annualised basis, US wages have expanded at a 4.1% pace. Combined with a very low jobless rate of just 4.2%, which is close to estimates of full employment, expectations of a higher cost of living may be fueling more assertive wage claims, which workers can make as the balance of power shifts from employers to employees. Since the GFC years, we've argued that continuously trying to mitigate all economic woes by running zero interest rate policies, coupled with never-ending money printing that funds unsustainable fiscal stimulus, will ultimately end in an inflation crisis. Policymakers have gotten into the habit of thinking they can disintermediate markets with their own unilateral price settings by having central banks buy trillions of dollars worth of privately traded assets. By bidding up these prices, the monetary policy mavens reduce the cost of both debt and equity capital to levels that participants have never previously seen. Hence the sub 2% home loan rates Aussie households have recently benefited from. There is of course a role for all these tools when we get genuine market failures driven by exogenous shocks. The pandemic was the best possible example of this type of external event. But once the shock passes, the world should normalise. Instead, governments seem hell-bent on trying to disappear the business cycle, even when some of its volatility is an inherently endogenous part of a capitalist system that tries to punish bad businesses and encourage more productive firms to rise up in their stead. The GFC was one such internal shock, resulting from a misallocation of labour and capital driven by the artificially cheap money that flowed from Greenspan's put. It warranted quote-unquote creative destruction in the form of overly levered businesses failing and their capital and labour shifting to more viable concerns. But many were kept on life support. The moral hazard of having central banks and treasuries constantly bail out bad businesses since 2007 has led to the rise of zombie firms that have earnings that cannot cover the interest repayments on their debts. In the US, around 15 to 20% of all listed businesses now meet this definition. 
Crucially, the post-GFC policy reflex of pouring public money on all private problems only works for as long as there is no inflationary cost. While that was true of the last decade, it is no longer true today, which is what makes this cycle so profoundly different. For the first time in a long time, we may face an unavoidable inflation-induced reckoning. To re-anchor inflation and consumer expectations, central banks may have to lift interest rates well above their neutral levels. Much higher discount rates may in turn compel a savage downward re-rating of asset prices. And Chris, two simple examples illustrate the lurking risks. Firstly, Aussie house prices have appreciated more than 30% since mid-2019, simply because mortgage rates declined by 100 to 125 basis points. If mortgage rates return to their mid-2019 marks, one should expect house prices to do likewise. Along similar lines, the US equity market is 27% higher than its pre-COVID levels. While it made sense for companies to recover the price falls they suffered in March 2020, the stunning increase in valuations beyond the prior peak must be at least partly attributable to the extreme fiscal and monetary policy stimulus that firms have profited from despite fully employed labour markets and above target inflation. There is further downside if one then bakes in higher discount rates. The S&P 500 was, for example, some 50% below its current level the last time the US 10-year government bond yield traded above 3% in late 2018. Meanwhile, geopolitics, long neglected by markets, may also come into play. The machine learning models we developed to predict the probability of major power war using hundreds of years of data handicapped the chance of a US-China conflict at almost 50%. If we were President Xi, we would take China while the insipid President Biden is in power. If he delays, he may have to face a second Trump term, which would raise the stakes of a truly existential military crisis. And if we were President Putin, we would retake Eastern Ukraine at the same time as Xi unifies Taiwan, so as to splinter the Western allies. One mitigant is that the global economy is now so drunk on cheap money and so heavily indebted that central banks may not have to lift rates far to crush inflation. This implies that the neutral cash rates may be lower than they have been in the past. But 100 basis points of mortgage rate hikes would still drop Aussie house prices by 15 to 25%. And some sort of mean reversion in discount rates should similarly push global equity valuations down. When all this comes to pass is an open question. If history is any guide, Chris, there may be further asset price appreciation until markets are convinced interest rates are heading into genuinely restrictive territory. In closing, allow us to address the chatter about credit, otherwise known as the banking corporate bond market, becoming, quote, the next quant revolution, end quote, as the Financial Times recently described it. There is certainly some merit to this idea. The $52 trillion over-the-counter global credit market is among the most inefficient asset classes one will find. We've traded many tens of billions of dollars of physical bonds last year, and yet the price and size of those transactions are not disclosed in the way that they are in, say, listed equities. Here, Australia is different to the rest of the world. If you trade bonds in the US and Europe, there is some delayed price and volume reporting. In the US, price and volume reporting within 15 minutes is mandatory. While it is voluntary in Europe, most banks report trades immediately, although they do have the option of suppressing information should they deem it sensitive. In Australia, though, the regulator has for some reason not got around to insisting that the ASX, which owns the monopoly clearinghouse, Austroclear, provide comparable levels of transparency. Know that we've repeatedly pushed for this, but to no avail. 
Imagine if you bought and sold billions of dollars of equities on the ASX, Chris, but nobody ever saw the price and volume associated with those transactions. That is exactly what Aussie credit is like, as both you and I know. Market makers in bonds have always opposed price and volume transparency, arguing that it hurts the profitability of their business and their capacity to inventory risk and intermediate flows. The counterfactual is that the global equities market has managed fine using a pure broker model without the need for market makers acting as principals. If global bond trading shifted to exchanges, there would likely be improvements in transparency and liquidity with a reduction in transaction costs. One interesting case study in this context is the ASX hybrid market. During the shock of March 2020, liquidity in many parts of the Australian corporate bond market evaporated. And yet, as you know well, Chris, liquidity in the ASX hybrid market was outstanding. We observed daily turnover in ASX hybrids rising from around $40 million per day on average prior to the pandemic to over $100 million per day at various points during March 2020. The main difference between triple B rated ASX hybrids and triple B rated OTC corporate bonds is their trading environment. The power of a listed exchange is that it forces all buyers and sellers transparently together into a single platform. By providing immediate price and volume reporting, the exchange gives participants confidence that they can execute orders in all environments. In contrast, the physical OTC bond market is an informational black hole. Academic research has demonstrated that when there are extreme information asymmetries, you can get outright market failures, which is what we observed in the OTC credit market in March 2020. There were some notable exceptions, such as the major bank's senior bonds. And as we know, these assets have unusually high credit ratings, which signal very low risk and are also eligible for the RBA's repurchase facilities. Another important feature of OTC bond markets is that a bilateral trade between two parties means that machines or computer-based algorithms cannot compete. If you called up CBA, for example, and asked them, can you sell me $10 million of NAB T2 bonds, only the two parties involved get access to this information. This is very different to loading up a bid on to the ASX for NAB shares where everyone in the world can directly compete with your flow. Bilateral trading in this manner makes OTC credit effectively a walled garden that is inaccessible to machines. And this is why systematic quant strategies have been historically rare in credit markets. If you are not executing electronically, it is very hard to build an algorithm to pick up the phone or to jump into Bloomberg chat rooms and engage with counterparties looking for opportunities to buy and sell. The advent of electronic trading platforms for OTC credit, including the likes of Yield Broker, Market Access, TradeWeb and Bloomberg, is however starting to change the market. Electronic trading allows for straight through processing of transactions and the development of bona fide algorithms for executing orders. Increasingly, there are also artificially intelligent systems that can act as digital market makers. And Chris, as we know well, the need for algorithmic market making is being amplified by the advent of passive ETFs and the preponderance of passive styles more generally, which want to execute large numbers of transactions across portfolios, comprising thousands of positions. In practice, this is easier for a machine rather than a human being to manage. In Europe, as much as 60% of the total value of OTC credit trading is now executed by electronic platforms. This is greater than the circa one-third share of e-trading in US credit, 
possibly because of the more dispersed nature of the European market where more banks compete for business. The emergence of liquid electronic platforms has in turn enabled the development of artificially intelligent market makers, which are slowly cannibalizing the flows that would have once been the domain of human traders. It is not clear yet whether this, whether this is actually changing the informational efficiency of the market. The main driver of both platform and algo trading has been passive products and ETF strategies, which are both informationally agnostic. They are allocating capital based on index weights, not on the basis of what assets are rich or cheap. This unambiguously detracts from or reduces the, the price efficiency of bond markets. And Chris, one benefit of these developments has arguably been liquidity, although perhaps only during benign market conditions. The ETF revolution has given vast volumes of retail money access to the once impenetrable OTC bond market. Yet to the extent that these capital flows are herd-like in their movements, sudden shifts into and out of an asset class can make market liquidity one-sided. Don't you think, Chris? Some argue that this is what afflicted liquidity in bond markets in March 2020, when the dominant passive investment flows suddenly wanted to, suddenly wanted to exit at the same time. Well, we certainly saw for the first time passive ETF products start trading at material discounts to their claimed net asset values, which was stale. It should not therefore be surprising that we generally find that OTC credit markets are much slower to react to material news events than their more informationally efficient equity cousins. When discussing which asset classes lead others, some claim that bonds are in fact smarter than equities. By bonds, folks normally mean the interest rate futures and derivative markets, which are mostly exchange traded and immensely price efficient. In our experience, it is much more difficult to identify mispricings in interest rate derivatives than it is in the opaque and often very sluggish OTC credit markets. And that's kind of ironic, Yingers, because in fixed income, most asset managers try and add value through making bets in those highly efficient interest rate derivative markets by second guessing the future moves of central banks around the world and future innovations in the underlying economic data. But because market pricing is so efficient, it's hard to find situations where market pricing is both wrong and sufficiently incorrect such that you can exploit those mispricings. That's why we prefer to focus on bottom-up and top-down individual asset selection. Well, I think we'll call that a wrap, Yingers. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, appreciate your time. Don't hesitate to reach out to us individually. Uh, and best of luck for 2022. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.